Turn with me to First Peter this morning, and he gives us four exhortations here in chapter 2, verse 17. And we're going to spend our time this morning simply on the last one of those, to fear God, and uh, look at a number of passages this morning having to do with this exhortation in chapter 2 and verse 17. We are to be as free men, verse 16, uh, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants to God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. We've talked quite a bit about honoring the king with the earlier part of uh, that exhortation of submitting to authorities that God has established. And this morning... I'd like us to spend our time on the exhortation there to fear God. This fourfold summary of our duties here is quite amazing. It, it touches just about every area of our lives, doesn't it? These four, honor all people, well, that touches our relationship to every human being, doesn't it? Honor all people who are made in the image of God and all the people that we come into contact Uh, Love the brotherhood, that touches our relationship to every member in Christ's universal church, doesn't it? Honor the king, touches our relationship in regard to the governing authorities that we're under. And then the command to fear God, that touches our relationship with God himself, doesn't it? To fear God. What should our relationship with God be like? And this is an element here, fear God. That'll be our focus here this morning. We're going to look at a number of passages to help us try to understand experientially uh, what this is. It's not a slavish fear, but yet it is fear. And working out this emotion in our life with God is very important. And we'll see that from the Scriptures. And I ask you, please don't drop out until we get through all of the passages that I have in mind. All right, so don't don't drop out and and think I can't have anything to do with a god like that. No, don't don't drop out until until we get through all of these these passages. Peter already exhorted us once to fear, didn't he, in chapter 1 verse 17, and if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. And we spent some significant time there. We've been exhorted to live in a certain type of fear because God our Father judges without partiality. Well, now Peter here specifically exhorts us to fear God. This is a command. We are commanded to fear God. And the states of our hearts and minds are very important. Our actions and words flow out of the condition of our hearts. They just do. You know Jesus taught that, of course. Out of the heart come everything, good or evil. So this this state, this condition of our hearts is so important. And we're being told here that this attitude of fearing God ought to be one of those states and conditions of our hearts as we follow the Lord and seek to get to know Him. 
So this is a command, and it's like, fear God and keep it up. It's present tense. These commands are all present tense. They're not like something you do once and then, okay, I check that off my list. No, this is fear God and keep it up, is the verb here. Now, there is an exclusive sense in which God alone is to be feared. And when the scripture teaches us to fear God, this is, this is like worship, okay? We've, we've, we've crossed into this realm of what worship is. And so as we're talking here about this command to fear God, we don't fear anyone else like this. There's no other human, there's no king, there's no earthly institution that is worthy of this, what this text is talking about. Okay, this is like integral with the proper worship of the one and only God. Okay, so let's make that clear right up front. Okay, we don't fear anybody or anything else like this. Okay, this is worship. So just get that clear. We're commanded to fear God. So are we commanded elsewhere in the New Testament to fear God? Well, we certainly are. Luke chapter 12 and Matthew 10. But turn to Luke chapter 12. We're, we're commanded here to fear God, especially in the context of not fearing man. Luke 12 verse 1. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he, that is Jesus, began to say to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have spoken in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. And I say to you, my friend, Do not be afraid, do not fear those who kill the body. So the context here is to deliver us from the fear of man and to escort us into the fear of God. (laughs) That's where Jesus is going. He wants his disciples to be delivered from the fear of man, and he chooses one of the highest possible fear of man that he could pick. (laughs) Those who can kill you. That's what he chooses. But he says, don't be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. That's an exclusive fear, isn't it? No one is to be feared like that but God. we got to keep reading. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. 
Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, that's what Jesus is urging us to. To confess him before men. And he's telling us we can do that and not be afraid. We ought to do that fearlessly. Now, whether you fear or not when you confess him before men, the obedience is in the confessing him before men. <laughs> so if, you could, if you're fearful and still confess him, praise the Lord, okay? <laughs> That's great. But Jesus is saying we can go so far as to actually not be fearful when we do confess him. I haven't gotten to that point. <laughs> Sometimes, maybe. But I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and the magistrates and the authorities, do not worry about what you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now this attitude of fearing God is what enables us to endure under persecution and not deny Him. Got it? This reverence and fearing of God is the thing that is going to enable you, and I hope me, to endure for His name's sake. Okay? And that's how Jesus is working it out there. I'll show you who to fear. Don't fear man, but fear God. And that will enable you to confess Christ in whatever situation you're called to do it. So yes, we're commanded in other passages in the New Testament to fear God. Revelation chapter 14, verse 16 through 17 is an amazing exhortation to us to fear God. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, a symbolic angel <laughs> flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory. For the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Fear God and give Him glory. Hey, see, it is worship, isn't it? Fear God and give Him glory and worship Him. I told you this kind of fear is bound up in a worship of God Himself that He alone is worthy of. So the God to be worshipped here and feared, He's identified here as our Creator. It is the everlasting gospel. The message to fear God is part of the everlasting gospel. 
And it's not the angels that are going to preach it throughout all the world. Okay, there's a wonderful figure there. It's the church that is called to preach the everlasting gospel of fear God amongst all the nations. Right? The church preaches throughout the earth, which brings people to this knowledge and fear of God. Now, that brings us to, you know, fearing God as our Creator reminds us of Psalm 33. Turn to Psalm 33, verses 8 through 9. Psalm 33, the gospel is to be preached, right? The gospel says, fear God our Creator, the message from the symbolic angel. Now look at how that connects to Psalm 33, verses 8 through 9. And we're to preach that gospel throughout all the earth, right? Psalm 33, 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. (laughs) There. (laughs) Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, And it was done. He commanded. And it stood fast. So we're we're brought to contemplate the creation. As to what kind of being this God is. What kind of being is it that can speak the Milky Way galaxy into existence? It's 80,000 light years across our galaxy, the one we inhabit. That's one. That's the Milky Way galaxy. If you could travel at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second, if you could travel a... It's only 22,000 miles around the earth, okay? So if you could travel at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second, it would take you 80,000 years to get across the Milky Way galaxy. And that's only one of billions of galaxies. He spoke, and it was done. We are talking about a creator that is infinite. And if you know math, any number, I don't care how big it is, divided by infinity is what? Come on. Zero. That's correct. If you know math... Any number, I don't care how big it is, if you divide it by infinity, it becomes zero. And God, of course, is infinite. So it's no problem for Him to speak a universe like ours into existence. Don't worship the material universe. Worship the One who created it. And it's a fearful thing. That amount of power? You have to think about that. There's a being that has that amount of power. So, let all the earth fear 
the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Absolutely. We are to fear him also because of the evil and the calamity that he can and will inflict by his righteous judgment. Back to Revelation chapter 15, there verses 1 through 4, we won't read all of it. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having seven last plagues. For in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. That's right. Who will not, who shall not fear you? That's right. Because of his righteous judgments. So we are commanded to fear God. And to do so properly, we must know him. And we may know him in Jesus Christ. The philosophers convinced themselves, and they didn't have our modern technology. Just by studying the heavens, the philosophers convinced themselves that this God was unknowable because we were such little specks. The philosophers, they convinced themselves that there's a God. It doesn't have anything to do with us, and He's unknowable. Why? Because He's so transcendent. They figured it out without our technology. They were so much smarter than we are. You realize those those stupid ancients, we are so much smarter than them? No, no, no. Professing to be wise, we're the ones who have become fools. They figured it out. Now, they didn't have special revelation All they saw was the transcendence of God. And they said, he's unknowable. He is so great. He is so distant. He is so powerful. He can't possibly have anything to do with us. We could not possibly understand him. He's just unknowable. That's the philosopher's God. But if we are to fear God properly, we must come to know him. And we can come to know Him in Jesus Christ, His Son. His Son is the revelation of the invisible, eternal, infinite God. The incarnation of the Son of God has made God knowable to us. And it's the most wonderful, wonderful thing. 
John Brown of Edinburgh. The only way in which we can apprehend this fear and why we should cherish it is by turning our minds to the contemplation of the venerable excellencies of the divine character. End quote. We need to think about the character and attributes of God. And we need to do that in a Christocentric way. We need to think about the character and the attributes of God. And we need to think in a Christ-centered, Son of God way. That's how we ought to do theology about the attributes and the nature of God. Too often we divide those subjects up. That's a mistake. Because the only way to know this infinite God is in Jesus Christ, His Son. So whatever this fearing God experience is, it has to do with knowing the true God in Jesus Christ to get this fear right. John Brown also says, everything about God is fitted to fill the mind with awe. And it would seem as if nothing short of insanity could prevent any being possessed of reason and affection from habitually feeling the sentiment of supreme veneration. Okay, that's a great sentence. <laughs> that's right. Well, given that definition of insanity, our world is filled with people who are insane. At least for now, because they don't fear God. Romans chapter 1 ends, there is no what? Fear of God before their eyes. Not yet. Not yet. When we get to Revelation 15, that'll all end. I find the incident in the Gospel of Mark of Jesus with his disciples on the sea. I find that helpful in understanding this fear of God. Turn to Mark chapter 4. And we're going to see two kinds of fear here. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now, when they had left the multitude... They took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? little slight accusation there, right? Jesus doesn't even care. We're going to drown to death out here. <laughs> Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I'm going off a little bit. We feel that way in our lives at times, don't we? We feel that way. And we've, we've been no better than they. We think the Lord doesn't care. Well, He did care for them. And He does care for you and for me. Do you not care, teacher, that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. 
Now, I've said this passage a number of times from this pulpit, and, you know, I'm a big believer in Sola Scriptura, but I just can't help but add, I think that was a full moon. And when there was a great calm, the reflection of the moon, they could see it right there on that sea of glass. It was like that, okay? Boom. You know, if you know some physics, it enhances your reading of these miracles. Where did all that energy go? All that energy in the sea and in those waves. Do you know that? You know, the amount of energy? And he just, boom, gone, gone. All that kinetic energy, gone. Sea of glass. The moon's reflecting there. Forgive me, okay? <laughs> I went beyond the text. But I mean, that's what it was like. I'm just trying to get you to relive it a little bit. You're on those waves, you know. You're going up and down, and you are what? You are scared. You're, you're fearful, right? You're fearful that you're going to perish. So you're filled up with the emotion of fear, correct? They, they were fearful. Let's read a little further. So... He says, peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? You know, that, that in itself drives me nuts. <laughs> well, I was about to die. <laughs> well, we just read, you know, don't fear those who can kill the body. Well, I guess storms can kill the body. I shouldn't fear, I shouldn't fear storms either, right? And, and he says to them, why, you know, why are you so fearful? That's another lesson. How is it that you have no faith? Oh, that's humbling. But here's the point I want to get to. Verse 41. And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? They exchanged one kind of fear for another. Were they afraid they were going to drown anymore? No. Were they afraid that Jesus was going to kick them out of the boat? No. But they what? Feared exceedingly when they had a perception of His greatness, the appropriate emotion was fear. And that's what they felt. And they looked at each other and they looked at Jesus sitting there in the boat. And they looked at each other. Who can this be? And they're, you know, they're afraid. They're overcome with the emotion of fear. Because they got some conception of how great he is. And fear is the appropriate emotion for that. That helps, doesn't it? Helps me understand this. Peter, who's writing the letter we're studying, was in that boat uh, that evening. Let's uh, do some implications and applications about this matter. Something is obviously wrong with religions that are void of all of the fear of God. That cannot possibly be biblical religion. 
You cannot possibly read your Old and your New Testaments and not realize that one of the preeminent marks of godliness is to fear God. One of the preeminent marks of Christian maturity is to live with this awesome respect and fear of God. So there's something obviously wrong with religions that are void of the fear of God. It reflects a deep-seated unbelief regarding God's revelation of Himself. That's what it reflects. For it is impossible to really know God without fearing Him. You can't possibly know this God without the response of fearing Him. And that's what the Scripture shows from Genesis through Revelation. So if there's no fear, there's no true knowledge. You're worshiping an idol. If you have a religion that is void of this, it's not the true God. You cannot know this true God revealed in Jesus Christ without fearing Him. Yes, there's a measure and there's a degree, yes. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. No fear of God, no real knowledge. What does that mean? It means we don't know anything as it ought to be known. That's what that means. We think we know a lot of things. And people think they know a lot of things who ignore God. But they don't know any one of those things as they ought to know it. That's what that means. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of true knowledge. See, that's what that means. You don't know anything in this universe or God's world aright without the fear of God. It's the beginning of knowing this world, your life, and all the rest. To know that aright, it's the beginning of true knowledge. You can't know anything in this creation, made by God, governed by God, aright without knowing Him. And that's what those statements in Scripture, there's quite a few of those. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You know, you eat a meal and your gut is filled. What does that mean? (laughs) What does that really mean? What it means? It means a lot of things. It means, number one, God created you. God was good enough to create you with taste buds so you could enjoy eating. And you ought to thank Him that you enjoy this wonderful thing we call eating. He created your digestive system that that food will sustain you. He created the earth to produce the plants and animals to feed you. We go on and on. That's what it means every time you eat a meal. Those that don't know God don't know a right. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Yeah. 
That's right. Well, all religion or supposed worship or theology that decentralizes the fear of God from our human experience plunges us into darkness, plunges us into ignorance, if you decentralize this. Such religion does not lead to a true knowledge of God, ourselves, or a true knowledge of the world. All such decentralization of the fear of God leads to a falsification of the world which God himself will one day strip out of the minds of all who don't know him. That falsification in their minds is going to be stripped out at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Okay? People think that the judgment on America is that the church has lost its political power or the immorality that is so prevalent among us. And they think, well, this is God's judging on America. And that may be true. That is true in one sense. If you read Romans chapter 1, that's true. Of being given over to idolatry. But you know, there's another type of judgment upon the visible church, the professed people of God. And it's described in Isaiah 63, 17, and it reads like this. O Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Judgment on the visible, professing people of God. And the prophet cries out, Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways? Well, what what did he do to make them stray from their ways? By what? And hardened our heart from your fear. That's when they strayed. Return for your servant's sake. All you can do then, (laughs) sue for mercy. See, that verse is an expression of repentance, isn't it? It is. That's what that verse is expressing. It's an expression of repentance and an acknowledgement that we have gone from your ways. And it's actually because God has hardened our hearts against his fear. And that's caused our falling away. That's right. What our religious culture needs to realize is that repentance needs to begin with us and with this religion of our nation. You want this nation to change, you're not going to be able to elect enough conservative people to Congress to fix this problem. Minds and hearts need to be brought back to the fear of God. Right? And our forefathers, even those who weren't Christians, 
had an operating fear of God in them. They did. And that's why this great nation worked. We're not. Our populace is not the populace of the late 18th century. Oh, God, return and reignite the fear of yourself both in the church and the nation and in religion. That's right. Return for your servant's sake. Okay, we are commanded to fear God and we don't need to make excuses for the command or explain it away or be ashamed of it. I know that John says that perfect love casts out fear. Absolutely. That's a truth also. These truths are not incompatible. Perfect love casts out fear, the wrong kind of fear. But surely it does not cast out the fear of God, nor the fearing of God that Peter commands us here. If you have no fear of God, you are asleep in the midst of a fire. It's really serious. I mean, I was that way. I slept for many, <laughs> I slept for more than two decades <laughs> in the middle of the fire, completely asleep for more than two decades. Such a condition may please you for the present, but one day you will awake. An unmixed, unavoidable terror will overtake you. And then it will be too late. Then it will be too late. Praise God. You know, he woke me up before it was too late. That was his mercy. I wasn't looking for him. <laughs> he came looking for me. And said, Dan! The house is on fire. Wake up. Wake up. That was an act of mercy. Mercy. Many of you can testify to the same thing. Now, the fear of God commanded here by Peter is not incompatible with assurance of salvation. This is why I say you've got to stick with me through the entirety of this message. This fear is not incompatible with assurance of salvation. For it is Peter who earlier wrote that the believer is one who has been born of the Father, quote, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's assurance. A living hope. That is assurance. That's strong assurance of salvation. And every Christian, Peter wrote, what? Is kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. A completed, full, glorious salvation revealed in the last time. That's assurance. <laughs> will we make it? Yes. <laughs> We will make it because we're kept by the power of God to have a full, complete salvation revealed to us in the last time. So that's assurance, isn't it? 
So this fear of God commanded is, is not incompatible with assurance of our salvation. And it's important that we see that. The plan of redemption which reveals God's inflexible justice and His unmovable resolve to punish all sin also reveals a mercy and love which is quite unexplainable. You know, it's far more difficult to explain why I'm in heaven instead of hell. It's not difficult to explain why we're judged. That's easy. What's difficult to explain is how in the world can I be forgiven? (laughs) That's the difficult thing to explain when you're thinking correctly that no man has ever thought up or dreamed up. And that's what Paul says, right? I has not seen, nor has it entered into the thought of man all those things God has prepared. So the plan of redemption which reveals God's inflexible justice and unmovable resolve to punish all sin also reveals a mercy and a love which is quite unexplainable. A God who requires my blood and then provides His own Son to provide it for me that I may become His adopted Son. Now that is unexplainable. A God who requires my blood and then provides His Son to provide that shed blood for me instead of me shedding my blood. That God gives His Son to shed the blood I so richly should shed. That I may become an adopted son. What can I say to my elder brother? What can I say to my elder brother when I see him? What are you going to say to your elder brother who poured out His blood for you, when you see Him. And what are you going to say to the Father who gave your elder brother? What are we going to say? We're just going to fall down. and God, this is unex- your behavior is unexplainable. But I'm a million times thankful for it. Okay? And the emotion of fear likely will be mingled in with all of that. Why do I say that? 
I'm going to close. I'm going to read four passages. Before I do that, Isaac Watts had it right. Alluding to the three hours of darkness when the Son of God bore the wrath of God for our sin. Isaac Watts expressed it eloquently this way, quote, Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. Amen. The saints of old have expressed this true experience of fear and assurance. And they've expressed that in the Psalms. One, fear and forgiveness. Psalm 130, verses 3 through 4. Listen to this. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There. No incompatibility there. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Okay? Fear and forgiveness compatible at the same time. Fear and hope. Psalm 147, 10 through 11. The Lord, He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His mercy. You know, that verse reassures me so much. When the wrong kind of fear begins to creep in, because you you know what you've done, (laughs) and the guilt and the conscience is on fire... There's a verse for you. There's a verse. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His mercy. God wants you. I don't care how big your sins are. I don't care how often you've done them. I I don't care. God delights in those who what? Hope in His mercy. And hope means confident expectation. That he'll be merciful to somebody like me. That's hope in his mercy. And that's compatible with fearing God. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. In those who hope in his mercy. (sighs) I mean that text. That has kept me afloat at times. The God revealed in those words. So fear and forgiveness compatible. Fear and hope compatible. Fear and trust. Fear and trust compatible. Oh, how great is your goodness which you have laid up for those who fear you. Which you have prepared for those who trust in you. There it is. Fear and trust compatible. Fear and trust compatible. How great is your goodness which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you. I don't have a time, but there's a Hebrew parallelism in both of those verses that drives the point home. 
Number four, fear and joy are not incompatible. Psalm chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Fear and joy. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. They're not incompatible in real Christian experience. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. Okay? Fear and joy not incompatible. So, that's the best I can do (laughs) to immerse you in this concept of fearing God in a gospel way. In a gospel way. So, you don't need me. You can read all those passages on your own. But, pursue the Lord in Christ. I don't know what else to say. Seek Him. Let's pray. Father, uh, wow. The right kind of fear of You is the beginning of true knowledge. And we know that that true knowledge has been poured out upon us by You sending Your Son, Your eternal, equal with You Son, into our world to display Your glory, not to destroy us, but to give us this long 2,000 years running of a season of mercy and grace (laughs) to call upon You and to know You uh, before the end. Oh God, we're thankful. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that You would pour out Your Holy Spirit in a fuller way and we would see Your glory, O God, in the face of Your Son, Jesus Christ, as You have expressed it in Your Word. Thank You, Lord, that we could gather today and sing these praises to You and have our minds stirred up by Your wonderful Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.